Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on tech policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I handle outreach at IPIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. This podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover, uh, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. Today, we're going to talk about industrial policy and particularly technology policy in China, including the impact of a series of U.S. uh, export control restrictions. And our guest today is Dan Wong, a technology analyst at GovCall Dragonomics Research, who writes on China's technology progress and the effects of U.S. regulatory actions. He's also a contributor at Bloomberg Opinion and publishes regularly on his website, danwong.co. Thanks for being here, Dan. Thank you very much, Jackie and Rob, for this very kind invitation. I'd also just say to our listeners, Dan has been really invaluable for educating me and my colleague Stephen Azell and others about what's really going on in China in the tech and particularly semiconductor spaces. Really valuable insights. So thank you. And Dan, you're originally from Canada and you moved a while ago from Hong Kong to Beijing. Before we get into the details on China policies, can you say a little bit about what it's been like living in Beijing in the last year and during the pandemic lockdown? Sure thing. Well, I was in Beijing since uh, the end of Chinese New Year in February 2020, and I experienced sort of the worst of the pandemic lockdown in Beijing. Um, But I think one thing to note uh, here, first of all, is that uh, about basically by April of 2020, a lot of the worst of the lockdown uh, in Beijing had uh, already passed. Now, there's always some uh, questions about uh, Chinese data, uh, but even if you magnify basically the Chinese COVID numbers by an order of magnitude, let's say, I think it's pretty uh, clear that by April, the country had mostly stomped out the virus. And then by that point, a lot of life had started to return to normal. Now, the lockdown, I think, was uh, still much more intense uh, and much more invasive than anywhere else in the world. I had a person basically stationed outside my apartment checking for passes to make sure that we are able to enter in and out. Travel was very highly restricted. We have to have basically a health scanner app, basically a contact tracing app that lives in my WeChat uh, everywhere that I go. For basically two months, it was a very tough time living in Beijing, to say nothing of basically this uh, centralized quarantine system that China imposed to separate sick people away from family so that they can quarantine on their own to stop the transmission of the virus, which is a very key plank of controlling the virus in China. But since then, life has become uh, quite a bit more normal. By September, in uh, I spent a month in Shanghai where life was basically completely back to normal. I was doing regular business meetings. We were sitting shoulder to shoulder uh, in the cinema. We were eating out. All the smart restaurants were booked. Uh, the strangest thing to me was that people were reaching out to shake my hand, uh, which I found kind of a bizarre experience. I'm trying to turn uh, most of those things into fist bumps. It's find very strange that a culture that didn't really start the handshake is now sort of one of the only places that's really perpetuating this tradition that seems a little bit strange now. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's really interesting. I plan to never, ever shake anybody's hand as far as I can tell. Um, Rob and I are a a little salty to begin with. So this is all fine for us to stop hugging and all of that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I have a T-shirt from my favorite company, which is the Despair Corporation, and it says, uh, a lifetime of social distancing prepared me for this. That's great. (laughs) I'm just curious on that. 
I assume everybody who was going outside during that period was wearing a mask. It was like you you had to wear a mask. You had to wear a mask often in most public spaces. And even now in Beijing, at this present moment, China's dealing with another outbreak. There's been a few dozen or a few hundred cases, especially in Hebei province, which completely encloses Beijing city. And so northern China right now is under a state of semi-lockdown. The Chinese government is trying to discourage people from returning home to Chinese New Year, which is a, the major travel event of the year. So right now, things are getting a little bit back up, back tied up again. But I think even at the most relaxed time in Beijing, which I would say, you know, something like late summer or early autumn, I would say that still maybe two thirds of the people on the streets were still wearing masks everywhere they went, even though there hasn't been local transmission for months. But right now, most people almost universally now are wearing masks in public again. You know, there's many things that I know that I'm glad we don't adopt from China, the surveillance and all that, but uh, mask wearing would be one of them that we should adopt. It's phenomenal that we don't do that. So, Dan, I want to jump in more, more obviously, to the kind of tech issues. You know, when, when we look back on the Trump administration, which we will in less than a week, obviously a core component of what they did was China policy, and a core component of that was export controls, where they really had this view that if we cut off certain technology exports to China, particularly in semiconductors and semiconductor equipment, that we could frankly cripple Chinese tech firms. You know, there's a whole push they had against Huawei for, you know, legitimate security reasons. But rather than just stop at that and say, we can't, no one can install Huawei telecom or 5G equipment in the U.S., they said, no, we're going to go further and we're going to try to really cripple or even put out of business Huawei by export controls. Can you say kind of just What's your thoughts on that? I know you've had, as we did, a lot of concerns about that. Is it working? What happened with it? What did the Chinese do? What were the effects? Sure. Well, taking a look just a little bit narrowly at the entity list, and then I want to talk a bit about broader sanctions. First of all, if you take a look at all the companies on the entity list, which includes Huawei, which includes um, some other chip makers, the effect has been mostly pretty varied. Some of it has been very severe, especially on the chip makers as well as on Huawei. Some of it hasn't been very effective at all. Now, I think, you know, just zooming in on a little bit on what's happened with Huawei, first uh, to give a bit of background, Huawei joined the entity list in May 2019. It hadn't really suffered a huge deal for its very first year on the entity list. Um, As best as we can tell, Huawei was still able to acquire very substantial amounts of U.S. semiconductors uh, for the most part, so long as they were produced overseas. uh, That was non-U.S. production. And if you take a look at the semiconductor value chain, uh, so many semiconductors are designed in California by major firms like Qualcomm and NVIDIA and Broadcom, and then actually manufactured in Taiwan, namely by a big company called TSMC. And for the most part, Huawei was still able to acquire quite a lot of semiconductors that way. Its main effect of you know having been designated to the entity list was to lose access to Google mobile services, which very substantially crippled its smartphone sales overseas. But the U.S. Department of Commerce took a look at that situation. The White House and the National Security Council took a look at that situation and said, well, you know, Huawei isn't quite suffering enough. And so it tightened restrictions only for Huawei in May 2020 and then tightened them once again in August 2020 
basically placing every semiconductor in the world under Department of Commerce jurisdiction and then imposing a license requirement. As best as I can tell now with Huawei, I spent two days visiting uh, the company in Shenzhen headquarters in November. Its smartphone business is in very deep trouble. Basically, it doesn't have necessarily a huge amount of smartphones on stock to be able to continue selling them in retail stores. Its space stations will still be able to continue production for most of 2021, um, and its enterprise business will be quite a bit okay. But the company as a whole is pivoting much more into being um, an automotive company, making not just infotainment systems, uh, but also a powertrain. And so it's becoming a, a less familiar Huawei in terms of you know selling mostly smartphones and base stations. The U.S. export controls has also really significantly affected a company called Fujian Tinghua, which had at one point been China's leading DRAM maker, a memory chip maker who was alleged to have uh, misappropriated trade secrets from Micron. Um, but, you know, for a, a lot of other ways, Chinese companies has not have not necessarily been very substantially affected by the entity list designations, mostly because there is substantial offshore production and not everyone needs U.S. origin semiconductors to the same degree as every other company. Now, I would also just, you know, want to point out that Huawei and Fujian Tinghua uh, have not been the only companies that have faced some sort of sanction. Over the summer, the president signed to executive orders that banned WeChat in the U.S. as well as TikTok in the U.S. These things are not being held up in federal court, but it could have included the scope of much larger sanctions against these two companies. Cepheus is now also in the process of forcing TikTok to be sold to a consortium of uh, U.S. investors. So really, there's been a lot of efforts in addition to export controls that the U.S. government has brought to bear on Chinese firms. So, Dan, one question I had is, I know, for example, that some uh, Trump administration officials have had the view when uh, the semiconductor industry says, well, look, if we don't sell those, we're going to be heard. We're going to have as much money to invest in R&D. Their response I've heard is, well, you're just going to lose that market anyway in 10 years. The Chinese will take it over. So you might as well take your lumps now. That's not a position we agree with. But I'm just curious, how much have these companies that some of the Chinese companies been able to acquire what they need from other sources, uh, non-U.S. sources? Or have we been able to shut them down completely and pretty much across the board? I think it is pretty difficult to shut these companies down completely. For the most part, the view of quite a lot of folks in the semiconductor industry in the U.S. is that the U.S. is not necessarily a monopolist on basically any every type of technology. Now, there are certainly types of semiconductor technologies like EDA tools and certain types of semiconductor equipment uh, manufacturing, um, semiconductor manufacturing equipment where U.S. firms are highly dominant. But there is also supply from European firms as well as Japanese firms. And also this offshore entity list basically is creating a little bit of an incentive for U.S. firms to you know, move their production overseas out of the U.S. Uh, so that they do not necessarily have to seek a license from Department of Commerce um, when they engage with entity list designated companies. And so, you know, you can wonder a little bit about whether the Trump administration's policies have really substantially helped uh, industry or is really just creating a lot of regulatory hurdles, which they're willing to jump through. I think to preserve their access to China, which I think is worth pointing out, that is basically every semiconductor company's largest market or fastest growing market, if you take a look at their revenue, because this is just a, a huge space for, for their continued operations. Yeah, you know, that's to me one of those uh, law of unintended consequences here, because the Trump administration's major goal really all along was to bring more 
production of all kinds back to the U.S. And in fact, the export control regime and the entity list has actually pushed that away. But the other thing it's done is really, I think, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, reduce the trust in American suppliers. I was in Italy uh, a while back, and there was an Italian company I spoke with that had a semiconductor or some kind of chip in its machine. It it was a machine company. And it said it was seriously thinking of switching over to a Japanese supplier because it just didn't want to take the risk of getting caught up in some sort of export control regime. So it really seems like we're helping our helping foreign companies, uh, helping offshoring of U.S. I mean, exactly the opposite of what we're doing there. I mean, I, what's your thoughts on that? Did you see that as well? I see that a great deal in China. So um, you know, everyone has observed what's happened with Huawei, which is um, you know really going struggling to maintain operations right now. And many firms are saying we don't want to be the next Huawei. And I think you'll see basically a lot of stories about U.S. export control actions, which are not always very carefully reported in China, basically attacking the American brand writ large and saying, well, if you're using American components, this might be cut off at any time, which you know is possibly close to truth for a lot of different companies. I have heard from uh, companies in industrial sectors, which are not necessarily very high tech, being told this is an American company being told by its customers, we want to audit your products for American content because we don't want our rug being pulled out from under us uh, at any minute. This is a, a lot of American companies are having fears that their market position is going to be threatened because they are just unreliable suppliers. I like that The Economist recently reported that chicken farmers in China are wondering if these baby chicklets, these um, very fancy chicklets that they get from uh, American poultry farms might be cut off by the Trump administration. Administration. Uh, and so basically, you know, we're seeing also that uh, Japanese firms are marketing themselves as being more politically reliable than U.S. firms. And so I see this as sort of a very strange antitrust action that the U.S. government has brought to bear against uh, basically the entire American brand. You also talk about the unintended consequences of these in your Bloomberg article that you I think it was in December. U.S. sanctions against China will make China great again is the title. And you talk about how this interruption of their supply chains is really long-term going to force them to find local suppliers or create local suppliers. Well, one of the favorite topics that Rob and I like to discuss is Chinese industrial policy. Now, U.S. actions have a great deal of bearing on the future of uh, Chinese industrial policy. So, you know, I would say that, you know, if you take a look at the broader track record of Chinese industrial policy over the last, uh, you know, to say nothing of the last 20 years, but over the last 50 years when they've been doing their five-year plans, you know, it's been, I think, mostly a failure, although with a few successes here and there. You think you can point to successes in something like solar panels. You can point to successes in something like high-speed rail and certain types of heavy machinery. But if you take a look at bigger ticket items, namely things like semiconductors and aviation, Chinese industry has, for the most part, been an enormous failure. So the track record of Chinese industrial policy is mixed at the very best. And I think the fundamental problem with Chinese industrial policy uh, has been that the government has been able to rely mostly on the state sector, namely government ministries, as well as state-owned firms, to buy obviously inferior Chinese products, and then hope that basically, you know, through this massive buying, through interprovincial competition, there could be a, a world-beating brand uh, out of this market. And sometimes that works in the case of uh, high-speed rail, and often it doesn't work. Now, what the U.S. actions uh, have done is that it has really aligned, in my view, basically a lot of the leading Chinese firms, a lot of the leading Chinese technology leaders, I would point to names like 
Huawei, as well as uh, Tencent and ByteDance and Alibaba and SMIC, China's largest uh, chip maker. There hasn't been very many companies uh, here that have not been actually sanctioned by the Trump administration or face the threat of a sanction from the Trump administration. And now all of these uh, companies are asking, well, now we can't necessarily depend on American supply. If you take a look at the procurement practices in the past, they overwhelmingly buying from American technology. Tencent and Alibaba uses basically about the same number of software tools from Silicon Valley as a lot of the California firms themselves. If you take apart a iPhone as well as a Huawei phone, apart from the processor, they're using broadly comparable uh, amounts of Chinese uh, hardware as well as U.S. hardware. And so a lot of these uh, major Chinese firms are now in the position where they are very much aligned with the state's industrial policy incentives of self-sufficiency as well as technological greatness. And so, you know, I think the issue here for the U.S. is that, you know, first of all, a lot of its um, brand is has been uh, sullied somewhat by uh, U.S. government actions. The Chinese companies now are much more aligned with the Chinese government's goal of uh, you know, doing much more industrial policy. And this is going to create uh, some problems. And, you know, just to inject a bit of a space analogy here. You know, uh, to editorialize a little bit, one of the things I've noted is that you know the U.S. has uh, mostly responded to the technological rise of the USSR as well as Japan by investing much more in itself, and it's responding to the technological rise of China mostly by kneecapping Chinese firms. And so, instead of realizing its own Sputnik moment, it is triggering one in China. To carry the space analogy just a little bit further, I think what the U.S. government has done is to put Huawei in the position that NASA was in the 1960s when it was purchasing semiconductors uh, purely on the basis of performance, not on cost. And so smaller Chinese companies that would never have the time of day given to it by a major company like Huawei now are finding that, oh, well, now its uh, products are up getting sold to a major customer. So now this has the possibility of broadly raising the technological capabilities of the entire ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, geez, talk about really unintended consequences. And, you know, with, again, with 10 days left in the Trump administration, you know, we've always been, I think, as you know, Dan, it really since, I think, 2011, we, we, we wrote really the first think tank report calling out what we call Chinese innovation mercantilism, and, and that is a threat to the U.S. economy, and we need to take it seriously. So at the, initially, we were somewhat pleased that the Trump administration was going to be taking a harder line than the Obama administration. But, you know, the core mistake I think they made here was they really didn't listen to people. They had a few people there, like Navarro, Peter Navarro, who had really made up their minds and, and they were just going to do what they were going to do. And they didn't really have the kind of dialogue with industry or with experts like yourself, in my opinion. Uh, and it led, led them down this path, which you know, at the end of the day could be, you know, very, very, very troubling. One of the discussions we have goes on in the U.S. all the time, and it, it really drives me absolutely crazy. It's this view of, well, we don't have to worry about China. We don't even you know, there's no reason for us to pass the Chips Act, which, uh, which as you know, is this you know bipartisan bill was in the Defense Authorization Act to support the chip industry and reshore it. And there's no reason to do that because the Chinese will never ever develop a chip sector. And you know that just again that again that drives me crazy because. They're making progress. I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that. You know, am I right? Are they making progress? I mean, yeah, they're now down to five nanometer, but they seem like they're making progress. And you think they'll continue to make progress? And where will that go? 
Well, the Chinese industry writ large, I would say, is capable of making progress, especially in even including in um, uh, these higher technology areas like semiconductors and aviation. But it's just a fantastically slow process. They are able to do things, but none of it happens overnight. They're not, I think, about to overrun U.S. industry any day now. But they are making fairly steady, credible progress. And the data point here that I really like to use is that you know the original iPhone when that first came out, people it was assembled in China. It was um, you know designed in California, as everyone knows from the label. And people used to say that, well, it's、uh, simply put together in China. If you take a look at the value added of、uh, Chinese、uh, production in、uh, an Apple iPhone in 2008, it's only about two percent,、uh, which is、uh, purely basically the labor involved in putting an iPhone together. Now, an academic who came up with that figure of two percent、uh, recently looked at the calculations once again. In 2018, the iPhone X incorporated around 25 percent of Chinese value added in an Apple iPhone. Now, Now, it went from 2000、uh, in 2008 from 2% to 2018 of、uh, 25%, a much higher value phone, and there's much more Chinese content uh, in uh, a normal iPhone. These are things like speakers,、uh, some of the mechanical parts, some of the simpler parts,、uh, but it has been very steady progress、uh, made by Chinese firms that have basically figured out、uh, one of the most complex electronic products in the world. And sort of that's how I see a lot of Chinese progress. It is basically a slow and steady affair. Yes, you have some fantastic consumer internet companies, but for the most part, even in the most fundamental, hardest technologies, we are seeing some steady progress in a lot of fronts. Yeah, no, it's funny you mentioned that that study. We that was from the folks at UC Irvine, and then and we did a, we actually did a Hill event、uh, with them early on when they did that initial report, and I saw that later one they did, and it, it, it's striking. You mentioned Comac, which are their jet aircraft. And Comac is essentially their, for the listeners, their state-owned Boeing, if you will. They're they're trying to make essentially the equivalent of a seven thirty-seven, and they have a they have a plane that flies. They're they're testing it. But I was struck by an article I wrote. I read, wrote. I read recently <laughs> where one of the engineers. I love this article I wrote. Yeah, I wrote an article about engineering in Comac because I'm a part-time aerospace engineer. It's brilliant. <laughs> I, I don't tell you these things, Jackie, but you know, <laughs> but one of the one of the aerospace engineers made a simple mistake in a spreadsheet or something like that, and it ended up costing the company like I don't know millions and millions of dollars because the measurement was wrong. I'm like, oh my gosh. But even with that, Comac is making progress, and and to your point about buying, you know, they're they're. Now, almost every Chinese airplane com- airline airline company is state owned, and so they will be forced to buy Comax, and then they'll get better. And I don't see Comax challenging Boeing or Airbus for ten years, but at some point, if they keep going, they will. And I think that's the point you were making, Dan. That's right, and you know the if you take a look at a subsidy driven wide body aircraft company that. Was very tenacious and succeeded.、Uh, you know, it's not exactly Boeing, but Airbus sort of fits that model. And if China can follow exactly the same ladder that Airbus did, well, you know, it might be a, a success. I, I agree with you in not less than ten years, but maybe a bit later on. By the time this podcast airs, we'll have a new president. Any advice you would give the Biden administration as they begin to navigate these issues? Well, I would say first of all to think very, very carefully about what the Trump administration has done. I think the Trump administration has reacted correctly. That you know, Huawei has some security concerns, and we need to make sure that its equipment is not in our network as well as the network and our allies. But is this course of action、uh, really the correct one? 
what exactly has been the strategic objective of designating Huawei to the entity list, and you know what exactly does the administration uh, really hope to achieve. And if you take a look basically at these other actions that the U.S. government has taken, you know, is it really correct to uh, sort of uh, trash the American brand uh, writ large and make the unreli- uh, unmake uh, American firms um, as a whole uh, pretty unreliable? And I would uh, encourage basically the next administration to think a bit more about how to you know stay ahead in this technological race. Um, is the right path to really try to uh, keep taking down Chinese firms? I don't think that a firm that assumes that Chinese companies will stay down can be a winning one in the longer term. I think Chinese firms will always try to catch up, uh, and they are very determined to do so. And now it's time for the U.S. to really think about how to extend its lead. Does that mean, uh, you know, for example, welcoming more immigrants? Does that mean supporting more universities? Does that mean uh, more support of uh, whatever form for its leading companies, including semiconductor companies? These are much tougher questions than, you know, uh, trying to kneecap Chinese firms. And these are now the very important questions to focus on. Dan, that was great. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you again for inviting me. And that is it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. We have more episodes and great guests lined up. New episodes will drop every other Monday, so we hope you'll continue to tune in.